Welcome to this message from Journey Church. Our hope is that you'd encounter God and His purpose for your journey. Be sure to visit us online at www.journeykc.com. In Scripture, all sorts of things would happen. You would have all sorts of miracles that would happen, all sorts of uh, miraculous events, God's deliverance. Uh, and one of the things that Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, by the way, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We've made it all the way to chapter 10. What we see here is Paul begins to remind some of the, the people in the church of Corinth of the many great things that God has done, just like we just had that testimony today, that God has done some amazing things. But just because God has done some amazing things, there's still a temptation in us to not uh, to not be a part of those things in our generation, especially here in the United States. We can be so detached from what God is doing all over the world. Well, in the church of Corinth, they were detached from what God had done in the past and, and, and seeing that process happen over and over again. Uh, research has uncovered that nearly three out of every five young Christians... That would be like people in our youth groups today disconnect either permanently or for an extended period of time from church life after the age of 15. So, so in other words, would that alarm you if 59% of the teenagers in our church would walk away from the faith? And yet those are the statistics. Why? I believe it's because we have, uh, we've, we've put a sterilized experience of what the gospel is in our life. We've, we've, we've put tradition, we've put all these things in there and we've tried to keep it to the lowest common denominator so that everyone can buy in as easy as possible without any discomfort, without any challenge, without any faith. And because of that, what we have is many people will walk away from the faith. If you took a time machine, parents of teenagers, if you took a time machine into the future and you found out that it was your teenagers that walked away, would that motivate you a little bit more? Yeah, it would. But yet there's, an, there's something in us that causes us to be disconnected from the potential things that might happen. And history has a tendency to repeat itself. That's what Paul begins to talk about. So let's, let's dive in. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 12. He said, let's, let's read this first portion. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. And what he's talking about here is the Israelites being delivered out of Egypt, going into the wilderness, passing through the Red Sea. That whole story. He's taking them back. And he says, now these things, uh, it says in verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He's talking about when uh, Moses, we'll talk about this in just a minute, when Moses goes up to the mountain, gets the Ten Commandments, and they had a party while he was gone. And, and it says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example 
but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed lest he fall. Paul begins to bring up this idea that the current generation always seems to think that they're immune to the previous generation's pitfalls. And yet what we see over and over again is history repeats itself. And so what you'll see in in church life, especially here in the United States, we've seen revival after revival. And what happens after what follows a revival is that, that then pretty soon people become cold because they become immune to the things that, that drove that first generation to seek after God. Now that doesn't really apply to us. We're strong now. Take heed lest you fall. And what happens is we begin to give ourselves into idols. Now, now they had idols in that particular culture at that particular time, and Paul was warning them against that, yes. But we have idols in our day. We don't call them the same things. We don't worship them in, in front of a, a temple. But again, the idea is this. Be careful. You think you're strong. You think that you're not like this culture or that culture or that family or that family. Be careful that you don't give in to a false god in your own way. The false God of comfort, the false God of appearances, the false God of culture, the false God. And we begin to finance and facilitate these things in our homes and in our lives. And so Paul gives a warning to the Corinthian church. And that warning that he gave to the Corinthian church is just as as right now word for them as it is for us today. Because we have this temptation to be lulled to sleep, don't we? To, to forget what it's like. And, and pretty soon before you know it, you're in a place you never thought that you would be. Maybe it's giving into temptation or maybe it's you've lost part of your walk with God that once used to be alive. There's this, uh, history tells us about this city called Sardis and Revelation chapter three talks about this city. It was, it was a, a, a city that was way up high on a cliff. It was so well fortified naturally that no enemy could penetrate this thing. They had walls and fortresses and it was really, really high. Well, the, the city leaders, they knew that no one could ever, no enemy could ever overtake them. And so they, they just forgot all about even trying to uh, guard against the enemy because they did not need to. Anyone who tried failed. They had walls, they had fortress, they were high. And pretty soon they began to just live their life comfortably as a people. And, and what used to be keeping one eye out for an enemy coming, all of a sudden they felt so comfortable that they didn't need to keep an eye out at all. And that was fine, and that served them well for a long, long time. But what happened is the city leaders failed to pay attention to little cracks that were forming in the walls and in the foundations of the city. And and because they were so high and they were so well fortified, they got so comfortable and so casual that these little cracks, they they didn't even think they were an issue. And, And before long, these little cracks in the walls began to get larger and larger until finally they were large enough that people could actually slip through. And so pretty soon this, this city that was once impenetrable now had some cracks in the foundations, yet the city leaders had failed to do anything about it because they did not think that, they, that it was ever going to happen to them. How many of you guys have ever seen somebody else make a big mistake and you said, that, that'll never happen to me? That's what was happening. 
to this city. And, and what used to be a fortress now all of a sudden had some cracks in the walls. And one night, as the city, the people in the city in Sardis, they were sleeping, the enemy slipped in through all of the cracks. And in the middle of the night, they positioned themselves in strategic places where the people would congregate. And while in the middle of the night, while the people were sleeping, they were positioned and they had overtaken the city. And when the people came out, the city was lost. What happened? At one point, everything was great. Everything was going well. But pretty soon they developed this idea that, well, that'll never happen to me. And there's a warning for us that Paul is trying to warn the people of Corinth. He says, be careful. You think you're strong. Be careful that you don't fall. You think what happened to them will never happen to me. And you might be getting lulled to sleep. If you have this idea that this will never happen to me, then Paul is talking to you this morning. If you have this idea, well, this message is not for me, that's exactly who Paul is talking to today. He was talking to people who thought, this is not for me. And so I, I want to talk to you today about what Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians 10. And that is this idea of avoiding temptation. And temptation could come in a lot of different forms. We think a lot of times maybe it's sexual temptation or all that, and sure it is. But Temptation could come in all kinds of forms. It can come in the temptation to gossip, in the temptation that, that I'm stronger, I don't need to do this or that. It can come for a per different person. It's all different for each person. And so I want to talk to you about temptation today, uh, which is like, I know everyone wanted to come and hear about temptation today and how we need to, yeah, I, I know, that's what you signed up for. Uh, but we're going to deal with it. And so let me give you a couple things about temptation. First of all, we've got to understand this. Everybody is tempted. Everybody. This is why Paul had to evidently say, hey, take heed, you who think you're strong, lest you fall. Because there is not a person in this room right now who's not being tempted or who's not been tempted. Every single person, no matter who you are, you will be tempted. Here's Israel. They've seen all these miracles. They saw God deliver them. Here's a picture of the pillar of smoke that followed them around by day. The cloud is a picture that he begins to paint for the New Testament church that that's like the spirit of God being given to you. And that, that river, that, that Red Sea that was parted and you went through and they were baptized into Moses. He's like, you, you guys have been baptized into Jesus. And just like they thought, hey, we've got God on our side and God's delivered that, that nothing can touch us. But they began to grumble. They began to, to participate in things that they should not. And they were not immune. And that's exactly what happened. Now, I, I can tell you, I was a youth pastor for several years. And, and I can't tell you how many parents, I they would bring their teenager, bring a 17-year-old teenager who was just screwed up, bring them into my office, and they were just messed up. And they would want me to try to fix in 45 minutes what they screwed up over 17 years. Because somewhere they thought, this is never going to happen to me. And pretty soon, over time, they got lulled to sleep. Well, Joshua, what he's referring to here in this, this, uh, this uh, story, Moses and actually Joshua, his assistant, go up on the mountain to go get the Ten Commandments. They were gone for like 40 days. And while they were gone, the people thought, maybe they're dead. 
You know, we haven't seen him forever. Where's our leader? And, and Aaron is left in charge down below. I kind of look at Aaron in the Bible as kind of like a youth pastor with a bunch of teenagers. They were kind of crazy. And, and, you know, it's great for a while, but pretty soon they can kind of wear you down. It's like youth camp. We just got back from youth camp. I was all ready to go for a second week. And then I kind of had a crash during second service last week. I'm like, okay, maybe I couldn't do two weeks. Well, that's why I picture Aaron. He's like hanging out with all the teenagers and pretty soon everything's going, going great. But then you leave them alone for too long and they're like, like shooting stuff and all sorts of things, you know, that just kind of blew up into something he wasn't expecting. Uh, But he was their leader. And so they go up there and Moses and Joshua come down from the mountain. They've got the Ten Commandments and all this stuff. And what happened? Aaron and all the Israelites had rejected the God of the Bible, rejected, the, rejected Jehovah. They, they were doing their own thing. They were worshiping false gods. They had, had melted all of their gold into an idol, into a calf. And they were dancing around and worshiping this calf. How do you go from being delivered out of that, out of Egypt, worshiping the God who saved you to all of a sudden within just a few weeks, now you're worshiping a false God. And Paul says, be careful. The same thing could happen to you. And and I, I find it interesting, Aaron's response in Exodus chapter 32, verse 24. You know, Moses confronts him and says, Aaron, how could you do this? And this is kind of what we do sometimes. Watch this. He says, so, so I said to them, let anyone who has the gold take it off. And so Aaron's trying to tell the story. Well, you know, here we are. They wanted me to have, you know, to give something to worship or whatever. And so he, he was like, I, tell them to take it off. And so I gave, they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. And this calf just came out. I, it's not my fault. And Paul is giving us a warning indirectly that some of us are trying to blame Satan for the sin that we fashioned with our own hands. Because we just, uh, I just, it just happened. And Paul says, be, be careful, those of you who think you're strong, lest you fall. You've got to realize every single one of you in this room is going to be tempted. The question is not, are you going to be tempted? The question is, what do you do when temptation comes? And so here we are on the other side. You know, they had the pillar of cloud and, and the baptism by the sea, and, and we've got the spirit and the baptism into Jesus. Listen, we are all going to be tempted, every single person. I, I get tempted. I'm a pastor. You're like, oh, spiritual people. No, every single person will be tempted. Second thing about temptation is this. Temptation is not a sin. Wait a minute. I thought that was a bad thing. Listen, every single person is tempted. Temptation is not a sin. Just because you are tempted does not disqualify you from serving Jesus. Why do I, why do I say that? Because Jesus was tempted and Jesus did not sin. So every single person here will be tempted, but temptation in itself is not a sin. Satan led, went out to the wilderness where Jesus was at fasting and praying and, and he took him through several temptations. The Bible calls it, you can read about it in Luke chapter four, how Jesus was tempted, but without sin. Jesus was tempted, the Bible says, in every way that we are. And yet Jesus did not sin. Jesus was tempted. And so you are going to be tempted just because you have a temptation does not mean that you're walking in sin. It's what we do with the temptation. So what do we do with the temptation? First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Whatever you're being tempted with right now, somebody else has been there. That's what he's saying. It's not, you're not unique. You're not special. Your situation's not the exception. No, it, it happens to every person. God is faithful. How many of you guys are thankful that God is faithful? He's faithful. 
God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And here's the real crux of the matter. A lot of us, we come into temptation and then we feel like we can't overcome that temptation. But there's a promise right here in this scripture that says that God is faithful and that whatever temptation you find yourself in, and you guys, maybe you're in a temptation this morning, today, in this this season of life, whatever temptation you find yourself in, there is a way of escape and God has promised you that, that you can find. And and that's number three, there is a way of escape. When, when I was a teenager, actually, I wasn't a teenager. I think I was maybe like 10 years old. I remember going to Worlds of Fun. How many of you guys remember uh, Worlds of Fun, the Orient Express roller coaster? Wasn't that an awesome ride? It seemed like the longer it, it stayed in existence, the more dangerous and rough of a ride it was. But I remember when I was just a little kid, my dad, and we had to wait in the line all the way up to the top. And I, my dad drug me into the line. And he was always trying to get us. And I was terrified of roller coasters. I'm not now, trust me. Uh, But I was then, I was just terrified. And so here I am with my dad, you know, 10 years old or whatever age. And so we get all the way up and we're waiting in line. And I'm just like freaking out inside, trying to act all cool and calm on the inside. But I'm freaking out on the inside. And there we are in line. And we're just a couple people from actually getting on this roller coaster that I've never ridden before. And I look up and how many of you guys remember this? There was a sign with a big old chicken on it. Have you guys remember that sign, the chicken sign? And I looked at that sign, and when my dad wasn't looking, I bolted for the chicken exit. I was gone, man. I was gone. There's nothing that could be done. And I was out of there. And, and God will give us a way of escape. You may get led right up to the edge of temptation, but if you look around, there's a way of escape. That's the promise of Scripture. There's always a way of escape. The question is, will we take the way? So let's keep reading in, in verse 14. He kind of shifts gears, but it's all tied together. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not the participation of the blood of Christ? He's talking about communion here as a church. The bread that we break, is it not the participation in the body of Christ? He's saying, isn't there something that happens when we share the table with one another and with God that, that, bring, that unites us in some way? It says, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? We already dealt with this in chapter 8, not going back there. And that any idol, then an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offered to demons and not to God. He's talking about the temples that they were worshiping in where they got most of their meat. He's like, if you're showing up at a temple and having a party at a temple, you're participating with, with what's going on in there because you're sharing that table. It's okay to buy the meat at the market, but don't go and hang out in the world and in idolatry. No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? What we see in here and what we're going to see unfold through the rest of the chapter, I believe are some ways that we can participate in the way of escape out of temptation. And he paints a little picture of of one thing right here. And and what, what it is is this. Number one, we've got to put some distance between us and the temptation. He says you can't be so close to temptation and think you're so strong. 
You can't show up at an idol's temple every single week, every single day, and participate in that and think it's not going to affect you in some way. you got to put some distance between you and the temptation. Now, a couple years ago, we, we bought 16 chickens. And speaking of chicken exits, we bought 16 chickens. Now, one of them died in a storm. There was a big storm about a year ago and loud thunder, and it just <laughs> fell over dead. Uh, so we, I don't know what happened. We just woke up, and he freaked out. So we have 15 now. And so we also have foxes in our, in our property. And I found out later that I, I took my shed and I turned it into a chicken coop. And I found out later that I had built my chicken coop right on top of a fox den. So I had to redo all this stuff and kick the foxes out. And so I was really, really nervous about trying to make sure that nothing got into my chicken coop and to my chicken run. And so I trenched in wire into the ground. I mean, I fortified it in all these different ways. And, and for the last two years, uh, nothing has got in. I mean, I've seen foxes right out there. But, but one of my dogs really has fun with all these chickens because he will run as hard as he can, as fast as he can, right up to the edge of the chicken run and try to scare the chickens. He's a bird dog, so that's what he wants to do. So he's running, and pretty soon they got to the point where they don't even care. They'll just stand there, like, just looking at him, like, are you done? You know, and, and he's, so he's just really, I mean, here he is. He's a bird dog. He wants these chickens. We would never let them out together, but he's been wanting these chickens. He's been looking at them. He's been running. He's been trying to chase them. Sometimes they'll try to peel off the, the fence to try to get to them. But I had this thing really, really fortified. I'd worked really hard to fortify this thing. Well, this past week, uh, I kind of heard a little commotion outside, and I went outside, and I went over to the chicken coop, and there my dog is inside the chicken coop. And I see one chicken there, and I see feathers everywhere. And so I'm looking and I saw on the top of the chicken run, I have chicken wire that he had evidently finally figured out that he could jump on top of the chicken wire and his weight broke through. And there he was inside. And so I ran in to try to get him out. He had been in with the chicken. There, there, I'm counting chickens. I only count like eight of them. And I see feathers everywhere. I got the dog out and I'm, I'm like, this dog like ate half our chickens or something. So we finally get out there and we uncover, uh, finally, little by little, these things could hide really, really well. And we found all 15 of them. Praise God. Now we have different names like One-Eyed Joe and, you know, <laughs> Stubby Leg and, you know, stuff like that. But they're all alive. I don't know how. And the, the point is, here, here my dog had been seeing this temptation for a dog for so long. And it was well fortified. It was, he, we had done everything we knew to do to keep him from this temptation time and time again. But over time, the temptation was too great. And over time, he was too close to the temptation. And over time, one day he found a way in. Listen, we, we have temptation in our life and we may have fortified our walls of temptation but listen, if we keep temptation too close to us, no matter how fortified we've made ourselves, no matter how strong we think we are, over time, one day we'll find a way in. We have to put ourselves some distance in between us and the temptation. We've got to create some space. I don't care how strong you are. If you keep something in front of you too long, eventually you're going to fall. You're going to fall. See, it's one thing. Paul says it's one thing to live in the world. It's another thing to let the world live in us. 
And if you allow temptation to be too close, one day you're going to wake up and realize that there's more of the world living in you than you ever thought. Because just like the people of Sardis, we let our guard down. There's this uh, lady named Shirley Glass, and she was researching a book uh, that she was writing. And and as part of her research, she discovered that 25% of wives and 44% of husbands had affairs. That number's pretty high. Uh, and many of those affairs began at work. In her practice between 1982 and 1990, 38% of unfaithful wives in her practice were involved with someone at work. And she, she also found that between uh, 1991 and 2000, that number increased from 38% to 50%. That, that uh, husband, among 350 couples, 62% of unfaithful men met affair partners at work. What am, what am I saying? Do we have to go to work? Yes, we go to work. But, it, but here's a great example about how it's easy to be lulled to sleep. It's easy for us to put our guard down from time to time. To get just a little bit too comfortable because we think it's, not, it's, it's okay. And little by little, time after time, Pretty soon we found ourselves in a place that we don't want to be. I I just want to challenge you today. Are there areas of your life right now that you need to create some distance? Married people, are there areas of your life right now that you need to create some distance? Uh, Are you in some sort of unhealthy emotional interaction that you need to create some distance? You say, well, on the surface, it's innocent. This relationship that I'm having. Teenagers, is there a relationship? That on on the, the surface, you say, hey, everything's in check. But... In your heart, there's more going on. You need to create some distance. When we were uh, young parents, so I had just our first kid, maybe a year and a half old or something like that, we had this uh, living room, and we had, on our fireplace, we had some decorations of some sort sitting on the, the hearth of the fireplace. And our son kept going up and messing with the, the decorations. Now, they could be broken and all that stuff. And so there were so many times that he got in trouble, like in one day, like over and over again. Uh, like, don't mess with this. Don't, it was kind of like Adam and Eve in the garden with the fruit, you know, like don't go there. And that's where he would go. And so uh, pretty soon after a while, I mean, we were just, we were just getting worn out. And I finally heard James Dobson, who's a family uh, counselor guy, and, and he said, and he, he described that exact scenario. He was like, instead of fighting that same battle, why don't you just move the stuff? <laughs> we moved the stuff, and we had a great time from there on out. Some of us, we're fighting unnecessary battles of temptation because we are unwilling to simply remove the stuff, create some distance. That's one of the ways God gives us a way of escape. All right, let's keep reading. This is good stuff, guys, isn't it? It's good. All right. Uh, I thought it was good when I was studying it. So uh, verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Remember, he talked about this again in chapter 8. Uh, Let no one seek his good, his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. But it begins to, to give a, create a scenario here, all right? So watch, he, he's kind of role-playing. He's trying to set up a scenario of this could happen in your life, all right? And he paints a picture. If one of the believer, unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever they said before you without it, raising any questions on the ground of conscience. He's like, you don't have to go in there and try to vet, is this like idol meat or demon meat? What is this? You know, just eat whatever it is because idols aren't anything if you don't give them power. 
but if someone says to you, probably a, a believer, if a believer happened to be there too, uh, and they said, uh, this has been offered in a sacrifice. And he says, well, don't eat it then. Don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So again, I'm not going to go back and preach chapter 8. The point is, what he's doing here is he's creating a scenario for them to consider. He says, this is most likely going to happen in your life. And the second thing, the second way of escape that we have, I believe, as examples in Scripture over and over again, and what he's proposing right here is before you get into the situation, predecide what you will do. And so what he does, he said, hey, guys, here's a scenario. Why don't you decide beforehand instead of when you get into the situation and then you, you don't know what to do? We have to predecide. You have to predecide what convictions are. You have to predecide where you're going to participate and what you're going to participate in and what you're not going to participate in. We have to predecide. Listen, this, this isn't just talking about sexual immorality here. Listen, guys, we, we need to go even further. And, and this is a problem for us, especially in church world. Uh, we need to predecide that we're not going to gossip because you're going to get into a situation where you're tempted to. You, you got to predecide some things in your life. You got to predecide on where you stand on certain things instead of waiting until you get in there. According to some experts, those who are having affairs, so let's go back to that. Some who are having affairs actually experience a change in your brain chemicals. And they, they say that it's, it's a little like cocaine, that, that experts feel that there's this biochemical craving that kicks in, in, listen to this, in times of stress, loss, or separation. Many people who've been involved in adulterous encounters have been overtired, stressed out, or ha and or have a feeling of emptiness. In other words, if you wait until you get into a situation and you base your response on how you feel in the moment and you have not predecided, most likely you're going to fall into temptation. It's only those who predecide. That it doesn't matter how tired I am. It doesn't matter how stressed I am. It doesn't matter any of those things. I've predecided. I don't have to make up that decision in the moment. Uh, Howard Hendricks of Dallas Theological Seminary studied 237 instances of Christian men who experienced moral failure. One common factor is this, that not one of the 237 had accountability relationships with other men. They had, not, they, they had nothing to predecide. They, they had no conversations that needed to happen beforehand. And so they just went with whatever. They had not predecided. He went on and he asked them, when are you most likely going to face temptation? Listen to these stats. 81% uh, said when they had not spent time with God. 57% said when they hadn't had enough rest. 45% said when life is difficult. 42% said during times of change. 37% said after a significant victory. And 30% said when life is going smoothly. So can you see where things are tilted? What, what I'm getting at is this. You know, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, watch how it ends. Jesus comes out. He overcame temptation. Now watch this. In verse 13 of Luke chapter 4. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. We all have opportune times. An opportune time when you're stressed or tired or any of those things. You've put yourself in an opportune time. That's when Satan will tempt you. 
We have to guard our opportune times. And we do that by pre-deciding, by putting some distance. You, you don't wait until you get into a temptation to decide where your convictions are. Because there are going to be some awkward situations uh, that you've got to have a plan for. Now, I'll give you an example in my life. I know everybody's scenario isn't like this, but mine is. And so I can, I can kind of set up certain boundaries and certain ways that we do things. So I've made a decision that I'm never going to be alone with a woman that's not my wife. Now, I know some of you guys, because of different situations, don't necessarily always have that luxury, a work environment or something like that. But I, I do. And so I, I've just made that. I've pre-decided that that's the case. And so there have been so many times where there's a situation where, where somebody will come. I'll be here in the building by myself. Somebody will come, knock on the door. I just run and hide. <laughs> I'm like, sorry. You may have needed help. You may have, I mean, your arm may have been falling off, but I cannot. I can't. I pre-decided. Pre-decided. There's times with our, our staff and our volunteers because we, we don't have necessarily set office hours for the same for everybody. We're not always here at the same time. There's, a, there's many scenarios where I may be in the building or one of our other guys may be in the building and then a lady may be in the building at the same time. And so we've created uh, boundaries. Each one of these rooms, each one of these things like shut off. They're, they're fire doors and they shut off into different sections. And we've made boundaries to say, if I'm in my section over here, you can't cross over into my section while I'm in the building. You just can't do that. So we'll go through enormous hoops sometimes. Like if somebody has to cross through the building, okay, I'm going to go lock myself in my office. Text me when you've gone over there. Drop a mail, you know, piece of mail off in the, in the common area in the middle. I'll wait until you're done, and then we'll come back. And we, just, we go to elaborate links. It looks crazy at times. But I do that because I've pre-decided. So this week we were uh, having a meeting about some potential future facilities. As you can see, we're, we're filling up. Uh, be praying for that, by the way, because we're, we're in prayer about different options that are coming up. Uh, to, and, and so one of the things we were doing is we were just kind of dreaming. We had an architect that goes to our church that we were just dreaming with, and he came in and just kind of said, what are our challenges and what are our issues? And one of the things that we brought up was that very issue, that there's so many times we're doing this dance, going back and forth. And so we're proposing creating a section uh, of employees where there's, there's just men in this section and then ladies in this section. That's how extreme it is. That's how extreme we are. But you know what? I predecided. I made a way of escape before I even needed. There are things in your life you may have to put some distance. You may have to predecide to avoid temptation. First Corinthians chapter 10. I know I've got to speed up. I'm running a little bit long here. 10 verse 31 through 33. Let's finish up the chapter. So whatever you eat or drink and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jew or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, that, that, but that of many that they might be saved. One of the ways, this may sound completely off topic, but here's one of the ways we have a way of escape from temptation. And it's this, we need to parade God's glory. It says everything you do, do for the glory of God. Whenever we shift our focus to putting God's glory on display in our life, it begins to avoid all sorts of things right there. When I was a kid, um, my grandfather, we were, we were in a, he lived in a small town. My grandfather had a moving business. He had big old moving trucks and trailers and stuff. And I remember as a kid, just a young kid, I don't know how old it was, but probably seven or eight or something, there's a picture of me and all of my cousins 
and we are sitting on the back of this trailer, and we're in the parade. I, I remember that moment of us driving through the parade, and it was a big deal handing out. Can't, have you guys ever been in a parade before? We are in one every single year at Journey Church, but I remember as a kid, that was so exciting just to be a part of this parade and, and going through that, and I remember watching parades. What are, what are parades? They're simply a city displaying what they believe is the best parts of their city for whoever shows up. And so you have this person or that politician or this business, and they go through and they put on the best display that they can of what their city is. You realize our life needs to be that, that we need to be a constant parade representing the city of God to this world, to whoever will show up. That's what our life needs to be. We need to parade God's glory to put it on display, to put it on display. I didn't say to parade godly things, and here's where we get off. A lot of us, we start to parade godly things like, well, hey, look at this in my life. Look at, look at what I did for God and look how I served for God. And look, uh, I, I didn't say parade godly things. I said parade his glory, parade him, put him on display. Because what happens is when we parade godly things in our life, things that God did or things that we did for God, then what happens is it's not about God's glory anymore. It's about our glory and then it turns into pride, which leads to temptation. I'm talking about putting all that aside. Let me, let me close up with a, a story. Uh, we can go ahead and have the worship team come back up. I'm going to close up with a story that Paul mentioned in the first part of the chapter. He, he talked, you guys catch this little thing where you talk about people being bit by snakes and serpents? Isn't that a little weird? Well, he's referring to the story in the Old Testament where the people of Israel were in the wilderness and they were complaining and grumbling, and complaining, and grumbling. God doesn't like complainers, by the way, evidently. Uh, he'll put up with it for a while, but uh, he, he, he's, he's merciful, thank, thank goodness. But they were complaining, and all of a sudden, all these snakes came out of nowhere, and they got bit, and people were dying. And so God instructs Moses to hold up this, this staff with this snake around it, this bronze snake around it, and anybody who would look at that would get instantly healed. Whoever saw it got healed. And so they did. So they got healed. Well, that was a great miraculous thing that happened. That was a great move of God. How do you guys have moves of God or moments with God or things that you can look back and say, man, that was so awesome that God did that. Or maybe times where God used you for something and you're just like, man, this is so great. Look how God used me. That's great. But what happened is if you go... I mean, the children of Israel, they got into the promised land. They go for a while. We got the book of Judges. We've got all of those, you know, the kings start to come. And pretty soon, king after king after king. We're talking about hundreds of years later. Things are different in Israel. And God calls on a guy named Hezekiah who became a king at 25 years old. And he began to do what was right in the sight of the Lord. In, verse, in 2 Kings 18, verse 3, it says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. Isn't that interesting? Hundreds of years later, they had kept this thing that represented some awesome thing God did. And they began to worship that thing. And to do, and listen, guys, we have the same thing in our life that many times we want to put glory, we want to glory 
in the thing, in the experience, in what we're doing for God. Listen, I said this to the teenagers Wednesday night, but God, God did something to me in a, long, a long time ago before we started the church. And I grew up in, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up with all these, I guess, check boxes of things you know, you read your Bible, do all serve, all these things. And I got to this point where I didn't feel like I was really being used in the way that I needed to be used. And so I was kind of pouring that out to God. And God said, what's your identity in that? And he said, if you knew it was my will for you to never serve or do anything for me again, would you do that and just rest in that? Now listen, I I pose that question to you because we we say on the surface, oh, of course, if I knew it was God's will or, or something doesn't sound right about that. But the point he was trying to get across is, How easy is it for us to associate our relationship with God with what we do for God? And instead of putting and parading God's glory, Him in our life, we parade what God is doing or what God is doing through us, and we parade that. We have to parade God's glory. That if we never did anything for God again, would we still feel worth it? Feel loved by God? Some of you guys need to wrestle with this because we've made an idol out of what we do for God. And that lends itself to a whole new type of temptation. And and we need to find the way of escape out of that this morning. I I know this has been a little bit different. You say, well, how can I parade God's glory? Because some of you guys are stuck in temptation and stuck in sin right now. How can I parade God's glory in my life when I've got all this stuff going on? I've got all this junk going on. Well, I believe the way that we do that is that we uh, understand that we have to shift our focus from our righteousness to his righteousness. It's not about what we can do. It's not about, I put it this way. Whenever I'm talking to God, God has to remind me that there is no one on the planet right now who has anything on me when it comes to my relationship. There's no one ahead of me. I could pick Billy Graham. I could pick a pastor friends of mine. Not one of them are in the ahead of the line when it comes to my relationship with God. Not one of them gets to be closer to God than I get to be. None of them have anything on me because it's not about my right standing. It's about his righteousness in my life. Does that mean that our conduct doesn't matter? No, of course it does matter. It affects us. It affects other people. It affects how we interact with God. It's a revealer of our heart and our true intentions. But, but here's what I want you to get. Revelation of his righteousness should produce more righteous living through us. Revelation of his righteousness in us ought to produce more righteous living through us. But let's not get it twisted around. Let's parade his glory. Can you guys just close your eyes for just a moment? I want you guys to see if you can let the Holy Spirit right now reveal this to you and receive revelation that you are as right before God as you will ever be. Because it's based on his righteous gift, not your righteous acts. Yes, our conduct matters. Yes, all of those things matter. But until you understand God's gift to you, you'll never be able to live by the Spirit or walk by the Spirit and walk in righteousness. So Lord, I pray for all of us today, all of us, me included, Lord, help us to understand how good you are. Help us to put your glory on display, you on display in our life. 
Lord, for those who are battling temptation right now, Lord, we thank you that you have promised a way of escape and you've, you are faithful. We thank you for that. And we rest in that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord one more time. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. For more information about Journey Church or to browse our media library, visit us online at journeykc.com.